From time to time, I've met someone who described their work as a life coach. And when I ask what exactly does that involve, they'll say something like, well, people employ me to help them achieve their goals. And when I ask, how did you get into that sort of work? They say, well, I, I worked and trained as an accountant for some years, and then after I got retrenched, I, I got interested in being a business coach for people trying to start their own business, and it's gone from there. And so there are coaching courses you can do, and it's interesting, there's no professional body or professional standard accreditation or licence to be a life coach in Australia. So basically, you could decide tonight you want to be a life coach, and maybe if you're good with making websites, you're a life coach tomorrow. One lady I met seemed to have done just that. I, I asked her about things, and she seemed to have decided just to be a life coach. So I wasn't surprised that she didn't seem to have many clients just yet. Of course, she might be really good, her reputation might build, and word of mouth, and her business might really grow. Because in the end, I guess, a life coach is only as good as their experience of life and also, of course, their skills in working with different people and helping people to uh, see what, what they need to do and, and help them, encourage them to do that. Well, I reckon the teacher in Ecclesiastes, whose words we've been reading this past month or so, is a life coach. Remember that he's embarked on this vast project to survey everything under the sun, meaning everything that happens in life. So back in chapter 2, verse 3, he wrote, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. He had a king's resources to embark on building projects and to provide himself with every pleasure and leisure as part of the great investigation of life. Can you see that he's got the potential to be a good life coach? He's looked at all of life and he's seen how it works and what works and how to do the best. What's the best thing? What's the good thing to do in life in this project of living? As we come to chapter 5 today, something new in the book of Ecclesiastes happens. Up till now, the teacher has been observing things and making commentary on it along the way. You remember his regular comment, meaningless. But today, for the first time, the teacher stops just describing what he's observed about people's lives and he goes really direct. He gives really clear instructions at verses 1 to 7. So my first point today, based on what the teacher has uh, been saying, is Teacher's Life Tip 101, Fear God. In American colleges, a basic or foundational subject is often labelled 101. So American History 101 will be taken by new students. And it's another example, I guess, of American culture's influence on our culture that you'll hear people around here describing some, when they're getting a new basic understanding of something, as saying, oh, I got a 101 crash course in that. Well, the teacher's point here is, when it comes to life, about how to do good in life, the key thing is we've got to think about God in relation to ourselves. We've got to fear God. And as he unpacks that, he looks at how there's a foolish way of relating to God and a wise way. 
And you can see that here in chapter 5, verse 1. Let's jump in there. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Is that because our church is so cluttered and there's many tripping hazards? Of course not. What he's saying is be careful and thoughtful about your attitude and behaviour, about your actions, when, for them, you go to the temple, and for us, let's apply it to coming to church, when you go to the house of God. Quick qualification, though. Sometimes people use the house of God to refer to church as though it was like an Old Testament temple The thing about the Old Testament temple was that God's glory was physically present in part of the temple. We don't have that. We don't have God's personal presence here other than inside of each of us uh, through the Holy Spirit that is at work in us. Church buildings are not genie bottles with God trapped in his bottle unless we let him out. We don't control God which is why we must guard our steps when we come to church to relate to him. Because, of course, he's still here in our midst and he sees all that happens. If we're going to be wise, the first thing we're told when we are to guard, when we come to church, is our tongue. You see those words? Go near to listen. First and foremost, when we go to church... We come to hear and respond to God in his word. And for us that means we take our times of reading the Bible and thinking about it, its meaning and its implications really, really seriously. And why is that? Well, that's because God is our creator. We're his creatures. So we need to hear what he has to say and respond appropriately with trust and repentance and obedience. Now, sometimes when you hear people talking about coming to church to worship, the first thing we tend to think of is the singing, which is fantastic, what we do here in our singing. But singing's not the first thing of worship. The first thing you see here is listen. To listen to God and respond to who he is and what he's done and what he desires of us as he's revealed in the Bible. And part of our response may well be to sing in praise or repentance. But until we've listened and got to know God, we may be just offering the sacrifice of fools. Of course, we can learn about God in our singing. And that's why at St Mark's we make sure the songs we sing have good biblical truths in them. Because they really get in your head, don't they? And and you want to be singing things that are going to stay with you that are true. The people who are described here as making the sacrifice of fools, he says, who do not know that they do wrong. They're so caught up in this foolish, wrong way of relating to God that they sin and they're not even aware of it. They don't even feel guilty about it. It comes in all sorts of ways at church. It's when we go through the motions of church, singing, praying with everyone, but we're not genuinely relating to God. We look like we're doing the church thing, the the, the sacrifices, the the sort of worship activities, but in fact our heart and mind's not really relating 
to God as we should. So how about, I'll throw out a few examples of that. It's like, it's like when you endure and sit through the sermon rather actually than engaging with the passage. Even if my delivery is poor, that doesn't excuse you from trying to understand and apply it for yourself because it is God's words. Of course, I try really hard to convey the truths and to be clear and engaging, but the big goal is for you to be hearing God speak in his very words, the words that we read, not necessarily to be entertained by by me. As I say, that's no excuse on my part for my actions, but even if I try hard, it's not going to work, is it, if you don't switch on and try. So it's possible to do the sacrifice of fools in the way we sit and in the sermon time. Or what about when uh, we promise God will do something in a prayer but we don't do it. We don't even try to do it. You know the times when after the sermon, uh, the service leader comes up and gets you to pick something from the sermon you're going to remember this week and work on. And, and you make a selection. Maybe you have to because you're talking to the person next to you in that spot. And you make your selection. Then the leader prays that God will help you do these things this week. And when you leave, you immediately, you've forgotten what you vowed. It's as if as you walk through that door, it's like one of those toys we had where you draw things and then you whip it across and it'll go blank. That's what's happened to your mind. If you've done that ever here, then maybe you've offered the sacrifice of a fool to God. You, you went through the motions, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do this, but you didn't care enough about it to actually try and remember it for the rest of the week. You, you could have got your phone out, couldn't you, and quickly noted it in so that during the week you'd think about it again or written it on the service sheet somewhere so that you would, in fact, try and put it into practice and really relate to God at a heart level. Another way we might offer the sacrifice of fools is when we're actually disobeying God in a particular area of our life. We know we are, but we still come and do the church thing. We go through the motions, looking to everyone else like we're a godly person, serious about a relationship with God. Now, I'm not talking about when you have an area in your life that you're struggling with and you're repentant about and you're asking God to help you with. That's not foolish because you're being honest with God and you're relating to God humbly. Now, I'm talking about when someone knows they're disobeying God and they won't do anything about it, yet continue to act like their life is everything it should be when they're at church. That's another way that we can offer God the sacrifice of a fool. One more example. You're a fine, active member of church, but outside the service you don't treat other church members in a loving, serving, caring way. Do you know God loves your fellow church members, but you... You treat them like dirt. That's obviously the sacrifice of fools, that you are acting like you're you're right with God, but you're actually not loving the people that he loves. I appreciated a comment I read about this. The fool does not know that to take God's name in vain has little to do with four-letter words and more to do with professing to follow God while our lives show that we know nothing truly of his character. Mm. All these examples, and you maybe can come up with others, they're all examples 
of the sacrifice of fools because it's foolish to think that God, who sees all and reads hearts, is going to be fooled by your hypocrisy or bought over by your participating in the service, in the singing, in the prayers and the giving when your heart's so cold. God isn't that easy to buy off. Remember that the only way that our sins could be paid for was by the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the sacrifice of atonement, turning God's wrath at sin away from us. What did that cost? It was the life, the life of God's son. And then someone goes and thinks God can be brought off because they're a really enthusiastic singer at church. How foolish is that? God will judge the church-going hypocrite, what the teacher calls the fool. So verse 2, chapter 5, Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. Don't make promises to God you have no intention of keeping or for which you have a very only vague intention, but you aren't actually going to organise yourself to try and keep it. You either make it and do it, verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay to to fill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. Or maybe it's better sometimes that you don't make the vow in the first place if you're not serious about it. Verse 5, it's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger my vow was a mistake. I take it that's when the, you, maybe you've made a vow to give something to the temple and the guy comes to collect. Oh, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? The teacher can see that God's anger is going to be aroused by the dishonesty of the person who thinks they can impress God or their fellow church members by their vow, by their promise, but doesn't plan to fulfil it. The problem with that sort of behaviour is that it isn't treating God as our creator and our judge, as he really is. It's treating him like some wimp who we don't have to worry about, some puffy marshmallow man, or like the little pet we we place in its cage after we've got it out and humid it for a little while with a few morsels. As the teacher remarks in the second half of verse 2 there, God is in heaven... And you are on earth. Do you, do you let those words sink in? He's in heaven. He's the big one here. You're the little thing on earth. So let your words be few. In other words, remember who is God in your life. It's not you. And listen to him speak. This attitude to God, of course, should be true of us, whether we're at church or anywhere else in our lives. I wonder if you remember Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector down at the temple. I thought I'd finish with that tonight. The Pharisee would have done well to read Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 1. If you remember the story, he had many words to say in praise of himself, of his piety, of his law-keeping, of his donations to the temple, of his tithing. And, and he was very quick to, to basically say to God, God, you are fortunate I'm on your team, for I am so good. I am so righteous. Not like 
that text collector. He really was a living example of the first half of verse 7. Have a look at verse 7 in our Bibles. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. His words were quite useless and futile in persuading God. The tax collector, on the other hand, comes across as humble and repentant before God. He doesn't have much to say, but what he does have to say is just right. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you remember in the parable, the punchline, that it was the tax collector and not the Pharisee who God listened to that day, who was forgiven and accepted by God. And why was that? Well, as his words betrayed, the tax collector was a living example of the second half of verse 7, Therefore, fear God. The tax collector feared God. He, he took God seriously. He knew that he wasn't right with God and he didn't try to pretend or act that he was. He was humble before God. He acknowledged God's enormous importance, power and, and knowledge compared to himself. He didn't try to trick God in some foolish way, he took God seriously and responded appropriately. He, what did he do? He asked for mercy. He feared God. This illustration would be perfect if in Jesus' parable he actually became Zacchaeus, who, are, who in another of Jesus' stories, of course, uh, on after getting to hear about this, uh, the challenge to... Uh, fear God and treat God properly, it changed his life. He started obeying God's will concerning honesty in business and loving instead of stealing from others. So that is Teacher's Life Tip 101. Fear God. Live with the reality of who he is and who you are under him, whether you're at church or whether you're not.